Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Stephen Hagen at Antiquum Farm, Junction City. It's July 27th, 2020. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, first question for you, a little bit different than the first question we usually ask. So mm-hmm. let's talk about why farming? Why, why grapes? Uh, uh, why farming? Why grapes? I got into farming wine grapes really because I just fell in love with agriculture in general. Um, I think that farming has the potential to to embody some of the most beautiful uh, and creative things about humanity um, when it's done in a mindful way. Um, and that also kind of hand in hand with that is, is that it also has the potential to to represent some of the worst instincts of humanity. So, um, you know, a, a desire to sort of strive towards uh, predictability, um, consistency, conformity um, on, on the one side of practices. And on the other, I, I think you can really gravitate towards beauty, expression, articulation, kindness and empathy. Um, so it was, it was those latter uh, traits that, that really drew me to farming as a craft. And then I just felt that, that wine is the product that has the most potential uh, to do, to do a, a few things. One of them is, is uh, it has an audience um, that really needs to hear the messaging that I think our farming style brings. Uh, people who, who can help influence change and, and change the trajectory of the way that the, uh, that, uh, ag- the agricultural industry operates. Um, and um, I forgot what my second thought was going to be on that, on that. but uh, that, I mean, that was in, in general, just, I was drawn to it as, as a, as a craft. And if you're, if you're interested in create in, in a, creating a project that is expressive and creative, you know, unfortunately we don't, nobody pokes and sniffs and swirls and prods carrots and broccoli like we do wine. So if you're looking for agriculture to be something that is creative and expressive and beautiful, um, wine is wine's a really good place to start. So take us through kind of your life before before wine. Uh, so I grew up here in Junction City. Um, so my uh, I actually grew up only about four miles away from here. Um, so this property was actually a place that I trespassed all over when I was a kid. Um, you know, it was the 1970s, early 1980s, a uh, very different time. Uh, people's uh, ideas of, of uh, property lines and things like that were a little foggier back then. And also I think I benefited from having a really feral childhood 
Um, <laughs> so uh, it was different out here then in that property values were a lot lower. Um, so there were kids. There's not a lot of kids out here anymore, um, which is which is not a good thing. Um, it's it's I feel it's a it's a less complete uh, neighborhood than it than it was when I was a kid. So we, you know, there were there were a few dozen of us, and you know, we all had our bikes and horses and motorcycles and all of those sort of you know redneck pleasures, um, and and we just we were all over the place in this neighborhood i mean we could be we could be 10 miles in any direction on any given day um you know we we, we would ride up into the blm up in the foothills of the coastal range and and have like five mile downhill bike races and and things like that so it was it was a really wild crazy childhood um and i got to know this place in a way that is very sort of gut level. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that you know my family was um, particularly my my father and I were really into all the outdoor stuff, so fishing, hunting, camping, um, and my parents were really great from kind of a scary age <laughs> of just letting me go. You know, so I would I'd. You know, when when I was 10 years old, they they bought me a very cheap horse and and a shotgun, and like I could go in the summertime and be gone for two three nights at a time and just out, and they knew that I was okay, um, and that was really formative, and I feel like there's something about those experiences and that intimacy that I developed with the woods and the hills and the creeks and things around here that really influenced some of the decisions that we started to make uh, when, we, when, we, when we started farming. So, um, so getting into, uh, you know, kind of leaving high school, um, I actually went to a, to a theater conservatory for a couple years uh, out in Chicago. Um, really interesting experience for me uh, as an 18-year-old kid from a town that at the time had 1,400 people in it when I graduated high school. Um, you know, I, I couldn't wait to get out of here. Um, and I just knew, I knew, I knew ex- exactly what I was going to do um, and, and how everything was going to play out. And it turned out when I got to Chicago that I just, I had no idea what living with someone who I didn't even know through the wall right next to me, like, like what that was. And I had, I had no skill set for living in a city and just dealing with that sort of proximity of human beings. Um, so, so I ended up getting kicked out of school <laughs> in my second year. Um, and I moved to Los Angeles uh, with the intention of of sort of rebooting and going into uh, USC's conservatory program for theater. Um, and it was there that I, my parents were also fed up with paying tuition after I'd kind of blown that. So uh, I I'd said I was going to work for two years and establish residency in California. And, and in doing that, I started working with a kind of higher end residential design company 
that was largely focused on events and uh, garden design. Mm -hmm. And I pretty quickly found out that I had um, some semblance of natural talent for that. Um, and that I was better at that probably than I was as an actor. Um, and so my dreams of kind of becoming the Norwegian De Niro very quickly uh, <laughs> uh, moved aside. And, um, and I actually realized I could make a living. So within about a year, I formed a garden design company and, and went to work. And we had, we had close to 10 years of a lot of fun in Los Angeles. So a lot of my friends, uh, you know, it, it was, um, you know, this kind of ragtag group of, of actors and models and musicians and, and all these people. So great looking gardening crew. I mean, we had, we had the best looking gardening crew in, in Los Angeles, uh, but we had a lot of fun. We did a lot of really great work uh, and, and a really, a really cool time in my life. Um, but then I met, I met my wife and literally the night that we met, the night we met and it was like, you want to kind of get out of here and go have babies in Oregon and, and we made the decision. So we, we were engaged formally inside of two weeks um, and within two months we'd, we'd actually come up here to visit my folks, saw this property and, and decided to make the move. Um, so it was all, all a little quick. I think if my kids did that I would freak out but both of our parents were really, were really cool about it at the time. So um, it's just one of those things we just knew, you know, so. Why the desire at that point to get, to come back? Why the desire to come back home? Um, the, the first night that uh, Nikki and I hung out, um, you know, we stayed up all night talking and, and we had very, very different upbringings. So my wife is from Salt Lake City um, and I'm from here. Um, her father was a banker. My dad was a high school physics and math teacher um, who in the summertime logged and, you know, did things like that. Um, and talking about that same, that childhood that I had, like she, she was just, she fell in love with that, you know. Um, and she said, she, you know, that she wanted her children to, to have to have an upbringing like that. Mm -hmm. And and that led to a discussion of like, well then we should just have children. <laughs> um, and and so that that was really it. And then um, you know, moving up to be closer to my parents. Um, to, I mean to be perfectly honest, there wasn't like there wasn't this huge, well thought out plan. Like a lot of that. And and like You'll see that to this day with the way that we farm and the way and probably the way we run our business. But there's not a lot of there's not a lot of planning. There's not a lot of forethought necessarily. I mean, we're trying to get better about that, but um, it really was just like a gut reaction. And so I we drove up here uh, for her to to meet my parents and and we booked a caterer for the wedding and bought a farm. Like, <laughs> you know, there wasn't, there wasn't really a plan. It was just sort of like, we saw this, you know, we, we wanted to 
have babies together. We knew we didn't want to be in Los Angeles and we saw this place and it was just like, that's the place, that's, that's it. And there was no plan at the time to plant a vineyard. There was no burning desire to make, you know, the new world's best Pinot Noir, you know, there was not, none of that. It was just a, a, like a gut level, you know, the same, the same way that we fell in love. Like we, we couldn't help it. Mm -hmm. You know, every, everything that was logical would say, don't do this. And we couldn't help it, you know? Um, so it was just, you know, the property just, you know, a lot, a lot like my wife, it just smelled right, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so. so you have the property, you make, you make the impulse move. What's, mm -hmm. the, what's the next step? What are you thinking at that point? Um, so at the time, the idea was that uh, I was going to um, keep the design company running in, in Los Angeles and work from here. Um, the company had evolved to the point where I could travel uh, to, to do, we were traveling to do some jobs. Um, it didn't seem like I necessarily had to be there on an everyday basis. Um, and so at the time we were planning on, on starting a small nursery in the Pinot Gris vineyard here <laughs> behind us um, and starting a nursery and, and growing out and supplying what we could grow here to just kind of you know, fatten margins further in, in the business. Um, I really quickly learned that uh, we did one job with me up here, and we learned that that probably wasn't wasn't going to work well. Mm -hmm. um, so we we started pivoting, and and the wine thing was kind of in the back of our mind already, um, and but we really you know we didn't we didn't know anything about it um you know i don't pretend that we know anything about it now um but at the time we really knew nothing um and and we just kind of jumped into it to be perfectly honest because it sounded pretty and romantic like we got into it just out of total ignorance and financial irresponsibility we got into it for all the wrong reasons um it just happens to be that through that really poor decision uh, we you know I, I really found who I was and what I think I was truly meant to do tell me about your you mentioned not having really any idea what, what you were getting into mm -hmm. you had, why was wine in, in your mind at all then at that point um, <laughs> well, uh, first I got to tell you a little bit about my dad to, to, to give you a good answer on that. So my dad is, is uh, originally from the Upper Peninsula in Michigan, uh, truly grew up in a family that in, in many times of the year, his family, they had a fishery on Lake Michigan um, and uh, did quite a bit of of truly off the land subsistence. So my, my dad is a feral character. He's 83 years old and he still is out thinning timber. In fact, you can hear him. Uh, he's, he's up on our place today, thinning timber. Uh, so at 83, he's still falling and bucking and yarding trees. So he's an entirely different animal. Um, and, and he's 
amazing. Both of my parents are amazing human beings. Uh, that said, my dad is also a person who has, who's never had a bad glass of wine. <laughs> you know, you can pour him one side of the spectrum. How is it dad? Oh, it's pretty good. And you know, other side of the spectrum, pretty good, you know? Um, and it was actually my dad who looked here and looked there and said, you know, I think that'd be a pretty good vineyard. You should think about that. <laughs> And we listen to it. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, it's probably not the sort of thing to put out there in the world, but it's true. It's it, that is how it happened, you know. And it got us thinking. It got us looking. And then we started asking deeper questions about it and looking into it. Um, by the time that we were serious about planting the vineyard. Um, we had a fairly good idea about, you know, what it was we wanted to do and how we wanted to do it. And, and a lot of that, and maybe this comes out of, again, like having no formal training in viticulture or business or winemaking, but the questions that I was asking I didn't feel like I was getting answers that to me felt real. And so it, that again, really shaped the way that we started farming in that I kind of said, you know what, I'm just, we're going to do our own thing and we're going to do this our, our own way. So. You told us a little bit earlier during the tour about some of that. Tell me about that kind of discovery. You, you have this idea for vines, yeah. and, and then you go out and try to learn about it, and, and, and what happens? Right. So, so the the thing, just as a total noob to to the industry, I was the idea of, of terroir. You know, the idea of of a place that 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 a place has a soul and that that soul can express itself uh, in wine, it really resonates with me and, and um, informs every decision that we make on this property, you know, coupled with having a multi-generational, you know, 100-year geological time view of our property. Those, those two things coming together are what really influence our decisions. And, and so when I was, when I was, trying to you know find what's the rest i wanted somebody to tell me like well this is what you do and then you'll have these beautiful articulate wines and they'll speak you know you'll you'll their your your sites will find their voice and and you know we developed enough now to know that there's not really a recipe for that um but when i was asking other growers and winemakers you know what they do uh, to achieve that and in, in wine, to be totally honest, and I don't make a lot of friends when I say this, um, I, I felt like I was talking to politicians. Uh, you know, it, it felt like marketing speak. The answers are very one layer and they don't actually go anywhere that to me felt like, like there was any substance to it. And, and honestly, to, the, to this day, like there's not a lot of growers out there. There's, there's a few, there's a handful and a half um, of people that I, I think are pursuing 
what I think of as, as sort of meaningful expression-driven viticulture. Um, but I, I decided, you know, after looking at organics, after looking at biodynamics, after looking at, you know, certified this and that and everything, I honestly decided like, I don't know what I'm talking about, but nobody else does too. <laughs> and there's people out there with PhDs in this stuff that are, I believe, are selling people a bill of goods that doesn't really exist. So what we just, you know, we, we came at this with the whole idea of doing, of, of like living a life that was beautiful and meaningful. And I was like, man, I'll be damned if I'm gonna do this and, and have it be fluff. You know, I, I, I do, um, I already sometimes as someone who just loves like the basic human nature of agriculture, I do struggle sometimes with the idea of that I am making a product that, that not everybody can afford. You know, it's a luxury thing. It is not, you know, Andrew will tell, tell you the polar opposite, but I will say like, I don't I don't think it's necessarily an imperative thing. It's not a totally necessary product. It's a luxury. Um, you know, others will say, oh no, it's totally necessary. It's just my personal value mm -hmm, system. Mm -hmm. um, there's a part of me that would feel much more at ease if I was growing, you know, uh, grain, you know, or, or broccoli or, or, or whatever. Um, so, so I'll be damned if I'm going to make high-end wines and not have a real serious message behind the the farming um, so i decided that we were gonna farm this place in a way that truly capitalizes on what i see as sort of the inherent uh, uh nature for individual expression and, I, and i'm not talking about you know when people say like this region does this or even this vineyard does this when i look at our vineyards uh, you know i in viticulture we tend to look at like say a block of 115 con pinot noir and we say oh well that does this mm -hmm. that isn't the way i see it at all like this little side hill this change in elevation the 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 every little variation in soil depth almost down to the individual vine level those are all opportunities for different expression and articulation and we should be i believe we should be farming in a way that drives after that level of expression and and so we started working at how do we how do we farm this way this this place not in a way that just makes the farm self-contained, but truly makes each vineyard site totally self-contained. So, so these vineyards have not received any fertilizer since 2007. Um, we don't use foiler feeds. We don't use compost. Um, a lot of what we're driving after, you know, is also as much elimination of machinery as we can. And as I sort of started just, you know, very shade tree level, auditing building compost piles that that could actually sustain the vineyard the amount of machine work for capturing that material building piles turning distributing all of that material which is a lot um it, it didn't that did not feel sustainable and we started trying to look at it in ways that were outside of the box and like how do we just skip 
the compost pile? How do we make, you know, instead of feeding hay to cows and collecting that material and building a pile, how do we make the worms our cows? How do we make the, the, the microbes in the soil our cows and our sheep, you know? And so, so for us, the clear, the clear thing is, you know, people always think about cover cropping as this thing of you build biomass and then you sort of cut it down, essentially harvest it and then incorporate it. Again, you know, bypassing tillage and saying, look, the real way to capture carbon and store it and, you know, put things where they belong and keep them there the answer to, to me was pretty obvious. We got to graze this thing. So then, so then that's where it gets tricky. So then the logistics <laughs> of how the hell do you do that? And that was, well, it's not over. It's not even close to over. It is something that's continuously evolving. For me, that's the joy of it is making the system work better and better and better and smoother and smoother and then you get a new idea and you totally blow it up and the wheels come off and you but it but you know it's going to get better again uh, and and making making our vineyards so much more than vineyards and in doing so making them stronger more resilient and i think infinitely more articulate um, and also what's been interesting is, is as those shifts have occurred, um, it's not just that the wines got better, um, it, they, they just got wonderfully weird. You know, there's a lot about these wines that um, is not appropriate for, for the Southern Willamette Valley or the Willamette Valley. Oregon and and in and in a lot of instances with our wines, they're not even necessarily varietally correct, but what they are is they are very truthful expressions of of this place and who we are and what we believe in. So, so you, you've 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 hinted you've, you've hinted at it now, but I'm I'm curious once you once you decide that, mm -hmm. how do you implement that? Uh, so so what is what does it actually look like? What does it actually look okay. like? Uh, first, let's put a name on it. Uh, I call it grazing-based viticulture. Uh, so the idea is um, using principles of rotational intensive grazing in a vineyard. Um, so cutting the vineyard up into small pieces, you know, it depends, and that's kind of part of the art and the flow of it is uh, depending on the time of the year and what the season's giving us, heat, rainfall, all of these things, um, are determine the size of the lots that we're grazing. And then also, um, depending on the time of the year, um, how many days we're in a given place. But the general goal is, is to be moving anywhere from three, every three to 10 days. And we're using sheep, pigs, geese, chickens, and now ducks, as we were talking about earlier, thanks to my daughter, um, uh, all as this sort of uh, migration pattern uh, moving through the vineyard. So the idea is with every rotation, and we're talking about anywhere from 20 to 25 movements through the site a year, um, that, that whenever, uh, when plants grow, and this is again one of those things where I think 
when we're thinking about cover cropping and all the, all these things, I think people are looking at it through the wrong lens. Uh, we tend to think of that biomass above the surface of the soil as that's what matters. There is a corresponding biomass of root matter that that is uh, underground, obviously, it's root matter. <laughs> um, as it is grazed off, that root mass dies off and recedes. And that die off creates this stimulation of microbial activity in the soil. So, but then sheep and everybody moves on and that that forage material recovers and those roots repenetrate. And so that's happening again and again and again. There's this sort of breathing in and out in these cycles of like growth and then death and rebirth again and again and again throughout the season. So what's happening as that's occurring is also because we're not fertilizing, we're not using compost, this place is sitting in isolation as that microbial population is turning over and over and is being stimulated again and again, it's also changing due to the isolation to become very specific to deal with the circumstances of these vineyard sites. So, and, and even different, little different areas within the vineyard. So as that is occurring, what's also happening is those microbial colonies and mycorrhizal fungal colonies are, are, are populating the root hairs of the plants. And what begins to happen is they start breaking down the insoluble nutrients in the, in the site. So again, and, and I, I keep saying this thing of like, we're looking at this all wrong. In agriculture in general, when, when we're looking at soil fertility and measuring for it, people are looking at insoluble nutrients. There is, in these soils here, an inexha nearly inexhaustible sea of, of insoluble nutrients. And so those, those fungal colonies and bacterial colonies begin breaking down those insolubles and delivering it to the root hairs of the plants. So, and then a cool symbiosis starts happening. The plants start kicking back carbohydrate reserves. So simple sugars going back to the, to the microbes. So they're feeding each other. Um, so the reason that that matters is think back to that you have this microbiological community that is developing in isolation and changing over time, becoming very specific to a place. Mm -hmm. So that's the crux of the whole thing is like, how do we really drive after place in our wines? That's how you create a microbiological community that is yours and is, and is feeding the vines and then the vines change. Mm -hmm. Um, so what's been really extraordinary to see, um, you know, we didn't really have any expectations going into this. Um, but what came out the other side is is nuts. I mean, we've seen a a series of of true genetic physiological mutations in the vineyard that are that are really special. You know, we we say this is Pinot Gris behind us uh, because that's what it was when we planted. Um, there's a lot about these wines that we don't even really know if that's what it is anymore, um, and. You know, we've seen 
some of these plants out here, you know, the first several years when they were planted, they were Pinot Gris, they were that light purplish, lavender, periwinkle, whatever color you want to call it. And then some of the vines just completely turned color and now they look like Pinot Blanc or Chardonnay. Uh, some of the vines, you'll have one half of the vine is that color, the other half is, is Pinot Gris looking. We even get like little individual berries where it looks like you just took a laser and drew a line right down the middle or like a little pie-shaped wedge where you've got this like green triangle and then and then Pinot Gris. And if you taste those berries um, and if you taste a lot of the fruit out in this site, it just, it's nothing, it's nothing like the varietal. The skins taste nothing, nothing like it in portions of the vineyard. So we treat the wines very differently. Mm -hmm. So from a winemaking perspective, um, we aren't coming at this from, you know, like a winery back out to the field perspective, or even God forbid, like market to, you know, there's some wines we make 75 cases of that we could probably sell 1500 cases of it, but the source material isn't there. Mm -hmm. So the wines that we make are solely based upon seeing something really special in a, in a certain spot in the vineyard and then trying to find the best way to honor that in the cellar with as little intervention as possible, if any at all. Um, so yeah, it's, it's logistically the system um, is a nightmare um, and it's and it's full of joy and beauty at the same time. It's one of those things that it is, it is infinitely challenging and frustrating. Um, I think there's a reason, a very sound, good reason that like nobody else is doing this um, so far. Um, you know, it is absolutely like financially infeasible. You know, I just, I just don't pay myself anything is what it really comes down to. Um, but I have work that is really, um, it comes down to that thing of like happiness versus fulfillment and are they the same thing? Um, you know, I, I mean, I know that like, I know I'm wearing my joints out at a very early age. Uh, I'm, I'm often frustrated at, you know, the short, comings and the limits of, of my own abilities. Um, but I feel really fulfilled mm -hmm. by, by the work. Um, it, you know, I, it, it gets me up, you know, every single morning, you know, some reasons because I'm mad, you know, but a lot of reasons, but a lot of days because I'm excited, mm -hmm. you know, I'm excited about, about making it better, you know, uh, and and always striving towards making it run a little smoother and and become a more and more expressive place so, so once you decide this is or, or start, start to make this decision you kind of have this vision forward and you're trying to minimize machinery you're trying to maximize individual or it, the individual space tell me about the uh, finding the animals uh, mm -hmm. and the proper animals and uh, training the animals right and, and then getting them to become part of the system right so um breed selection is really important you know um a huge part of the process is what um what 
what animals fit the system, you know. Um, do cows work? <laughs> do horses work? You know, um, all of these things, you know, uh, at the time when I was developing these ideas, a huge part, like a huge part of my personal identity was I, I, I worked with draft horses, I farmed with them. I, I still have a team of draft horses. Um, and they were, uh, for many, many years, a huge part of our vineyard. If you go to our very outdated website, which is currently being updated, uh, there are pictures of a younger, skinnier, less hairy me with a team of draft horses working in the vineyard. Um, that, as this system evolved, that became obsolete because simply the work that we were doing with the horses was a lot of tillage, you know, prepping for cover crops, all those kinds of things. So that was one of the first things as the system transitioned, that went away. Um, and we were looking for, um, you know, what are the right animals to fit into the vineyard? You know, one of the first pitfalls was, and I still hear people say this all the time, oh, get baby doll south down cheap because they're so short, they can't reach the vines. It's bullshit. Like, it's like uh, you know, unless you have your heads trained up at, you know, 60 inches, uh, what, what I saw in very short order is that those sheep will put their feet up on they they can even just stand up on their back legs and just munch away and destroy your vineyard in short order. So so uh, we kind of have geared towards a couple different breeds of sheep, uh, but we've also selected kind of for our own strain as we go. So we're trying to to breed down height but still have nice lamby, meaty carcasses on them uh, because we're not interested in them just being ornaments out there. We, we want to make this a complete farm. So those other products are part of the mix. They're part of our hospitality program. Um, but the sheep that we've, for now that we're crossing are uh, Katahdin's and Dorper's and then, and then selecting individuals that are also shorter. So the shorter is not with the idea that they can't reach the vines. The shorter is the idea that they fit underneath the cane wires in a vineyard that was planted with, you know, not considering sheep <laughs> in the beginning. So, so we're basically trying to fit them under a, and we did raise our heads after a few years. So now we're trying to fit them under a 29 inch wire. Um, so that's just to get their backs to clear. Um, and then we used to do use a process called aversion training, um, which was something that I never really felt fully comfortable with. Uh, but I also was not ready to financially implement the system that we have now. But aversion training is where you sort of you uh, work uh, with creating digestive disruption in the sheep after having them eat grapevines, um, and they basically they get a stomachache for about an hour. Um, similar to a, a you know mild to medium tier hangover um, and then they tend to uh, avoid eating the vines what we started experiencing was that as we uh, that training will work as long as you have palatable forage in the vineyard so if the idea is to really sustain the vineyard and have livestock out there year round like that can as vintages are getting warmer and drier 
um, some of those windows were getting too short mm -hmm. to have to have the program actually be meaningful. So I think it was 2000. Yeah, 2017 because we retrofitted last year. So 2017, it was so dry that we actually had to pull the sheep out in the middle of May, and I just said, "This is we're going to shift." Um, and luckily, we were also nearly in a place financially where we could transition to the system that we have now, which is now we have offset electrical wires in the trellis. So one pair that is down just below head height, and then the whole system is sort of adjustable and movable. Uh, so we can, as shoots grow and things like that, we can move things out if we need to or change the you know the proportion on either side uh, but they're in as close to the head as we can get without shorting out the system and then we've got another that are just up above the cane wire uh, that stand out at about uh, 10 or 11 inches on either side um, again i mean those wires make moving catch wires leaf pulling picking fruit like all it makes all of these things more difficult, more expensive. Um, you know, it makes your vineyard crews hate you and wonder, you know, why Steve's got to be so nuts. Um, but it works extremely well. So, and then outside of that, we've got, you know, our Cooney Cooney pigs that you met earlier, small statured pig, uh, a true grazing pig. Um, so we've been able to sustain those pigs entirely on forage from, from May 15th until just a couple weeks ago. So um, the, the you know beginning of, of July. And, um, and their smaller stature and size will keep them from breaking off vines, disturbing soil. Um, they have kind of little short upturned snouts. So as they try to root, they just kind of skim along the surface. Um, and so they get frustrated. So as long as you give them a good wallow to cool down in on a warm day, uh, they, they tend to not uh, disrupt the soil, which is part of our goal. So, and then coming behind all of that, coming behind the sheep and the pigs are, you know, like in any natural migration pattern is our flock of birds. So kind of the core of that are the, are the chickens, um, who's, uh, who, so we've got geese in there that are kind of doing the final pass of grazing. Uh, so they'll take things down to, you know, a couple inches, two to three inches. And then the chickens are there to kind of act as a weeding and sanitation crew. So uh, any green growing weeds that we have left in the undervine area, we're throwing scratch grain at those weeds. And so the chickens will go after that scratch grain. And as they scratch after it, they'll scratch away the weeds. So you'll see out in our vineyard, there's dirt sometimes just thrown all over the place. So... And that's one of the things about the system. Like, I really, I really hope that consumers can slowly move away from the idea that if they look at a vineyard and it looks like a golf course, that it's well farmed. You know, I, if if the idea is to have something that is is complete and expressive, it's not going to be neat and tidy. You know, and it shouldn't be. There should be a pig wallow in it. You know, <laughs> and and there should be you know shit everywhere <laughs> you know and and i mean that's that is what a natural system looks like um so um 
so the, the chickens are scratching through all of that manure, so breaking it apart. What they're doing is going after pests and parasite eggs and things like that. So when I say they're the sanitation crew, what they're, what they're really doing is, uh, is they're cleaning it up for the next pass. So they're keeping our sheep parasite free. Every, everything is, is getting kind of cleaned up, exposed to air, exposed to sunlight. And, and so that in the next pass, um, we can, you know, have sheep that are healthy and, and happy. Mm -hmm. So we haven't, we haven't used any wormers on our, on our sheep for seven years, something like that, I think, um, which, is, which is a serious victory. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and now we're at the point where we're at sort of genetic resistance level through selection, so if we see one or two that have picked up parasites, they just, they're, they get kicked out of the program. And that's, you know, that's just selection, you know, for, for, for low maintenance over time. So the, the, the way you've described this sounds like a, a lot of trial and error and a lot of, a lot of uh, developing, like you mentioned, kind of developing on the run. So tell me about uh, as, what, what you've done that has kind of created more, you, you do one thing, you like it, but it's not quite right. Tell me mm -hmm. about the kind of process of, of finding the right fit and, and of the, some of the things you've, you may, like you mentioned, some of the things you've tried that haven't really worked. Some of the kind of missteps along the way that have kind of brought you to where you are now. Yeah, I mean, the, the baby doll South Down sheep was definitely one of them. Um, uh, aversion training was something that, you know, the first couple years when we did it, I thought, man, this is, this is it. You know, this is the answer. It's easy. Um, I mean, it's not easy, but it's, it's easier than what we do now. Um, but then, you know, circumstances changed. And I mean, to me, that's, that's what good farming is, is observation, you know, not getting locked in. It's one of the things I hate about certification is you get, you know, if you, you set this bar and you have this checklist and then that's sort of the end of the discussion, it's, it's sort of a death knell to, to creativity. Um, so that's what I really love about this system is every season is different. Um, and they all, you know, every, Everyone has its set of challenges and even down to like thinking of thinking of the vines as individuals, the animals are also individuals, so they all have their different quirks and personalities and that's part of the joy of the intimacy of this thing. Mm -hmm. um, so, so yeah, it's, it's just one of those things that every year there's something you did last year that absolutely is not going to work and you just have to keep the conversation going stay self-critical um which isn't always fun you know um but but just constantly keep working at it and tinkering with it and that is you know for me that's that's the meaning of it and that's the that's the joy in it um is is just that it's it's constant discovery mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. it's it's what keeps me interested and engaged you mentioned co uh, consumers a couple of times and i'm curious uh because what you're doing is so is so different and it's creating such a different product than anybody else has uh when it comes to I mean, we'll start with 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 producers who, mm -hmm. you, who you work with tell me about 
selling someone Pinot Gris that may or may not still be Pinot Gris, for example, how, how do you find winemakers outside of here who want to work with you? And, and what, do you, what, what, what is the relationship like in terms of what are you promising them? What do, what do they want mm -hmm. from you versus what they want from maybe from a, from a more typical uh, grower? Yeah, I mean, in general, the people that, um, that um, buy fruit from us are coming to us because they understand and appreciate that different voice. Um, and, and not everyone is looking for that, and I totally understand and respect that. Everybody has a different program, and, and we're making wines for different reasons, for different markets, and different customer bases. Um, and when this vineyard really did start shifting, and that's, that's kind of an interesting thing that happened, is once we had this program really running, so we started in 2007, it was really running by 2010, and that was a year where everything in the vineyard like completely shifted in one year. It was just an absolute about face. And there were a couple vineyard clients that that weren't down with Pinot Noir that had a pH that was more reflective of of sparkling wine. You know, like our pHs. One of the things that happens with our Pinot Noirs is we have pHs that that like belong at 17 or 18 bricks. And then it tends to be a vineyard that expresses itself at, at a level that honestly is, is usually kind of considered overripe, but those two things sit together. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you've got this very, very low pH with, with ad, extremely advanced ripening. Mm -hmm. And there were, there were a couple clients that we had that just didn't, you know, they hadn't seen that in the wine making or history textbooks and they didn't want any part of it. There were other people that saw it and started salivating, <laughs> you know, because it was what, you know, what, what one, you know, winemaker in particular said to me was, this is what we all say we want, just people don't know it when they see it, <laughs> you know, because it hasn't happened. Um, so that, that, um, you know, and, and I, I, I really don't, I try to not have judgment on that. Uh, uh, you know, I, I mean, I definitely have a certain way that I gravitate, you know, and I, 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 I don't gravitate towards predictability. And, and, um, and I think that this thing, uh, again, like, like I said earlier, the more that we move away from conformity, uniformity, predictability, the more we move towards something that's meaningful. Um, and um, yeah. I'd so some more question with consumers then. You're, you're, you're creating a product then oh, that yeah. is, that is uh, different than anything else they may taste. I, I know, for example, the Pinot Noir I tasted from you was unlike anything I'd ever had. And so I'm curious about attracting consumers, mm -hmm. uh, especially at a premium price, uh, mm -hmm. to a product that is so unique and so different from, from year to year, from block to block, uh, as yours is. So tell me about what, what, consumers are, what consumers are finding, how they're finding you, mm -hmm. and sort of what's keeping them coming back. Yeah, uh, I mean, one of the things that's, that's, that's really interesting uh, is the wines are different. They are, as, as I often say, they're wonderfully weird. Um, but they're also classically well-made. Um, you know, they aren't, 
you know, they aren't weird for the sake of being, you know, they aren't different for the sake of being different. They're different because it's just honestly what they are. And so for me, it's, it's kind of one of those like real recognizes real things that, um, you know, I think when people see it and experience it, they, they recognize it, you know, and, and, and I, th I think we also have the benefit of that, that the wines are also on, on, on like entry, like entry level on the wine, they're enjoyable. You know, they're not, you know, they're not wines where you have to sit there and go, do I like it? Don't, you know, do it. They're, they're yummy, you know? Um, so, so that helps. Uh, it can be a challenge sometimes in the sort of like on-premise, you know, restaurant market when you're trying to fit a wine onto a wine list. Now that, that, that tends to be an entry into a market, mm -hmm. you know, conundrum that then as you become established, then hopefully with time, people get to know the wines and then, and then you aren't this thing sitting there that no one, that someone just blindly picks off of the list because it hits the right price point. Mm -hmm. And, and then they, and then they're like, this isn't Willamette Valley Pinot Noir. Um, but I, I will say that, you know, uh, you know, every now and then there's a buyer that just says, this is not Willamette Valley Pinot Noir to me. Um, it's not for me. I get that. I totally understand that. Some of those buyers have become some of our most ardent supporters because it led to a deeper conversation of like, well, let's, let's talk about that set of expectations. And is, should that even be, should that even be the conversation that we're having? You know, should, is that really what you want? is for to know what you're getting you know isn't your job more fun to go to that customer that's coming into your restaurant and saying i have something you need to see you know i think it's more fun uh and 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 oftentimes when we're out in market we have some success with converting people to that to that viewpoint um, and then, you know, with, with direct to consumer customers, we just, we just hope to win them over with pigs, <laughs> you know, um, that, I mean, seriously though, um, what we, what we really enjoy most of all is pouring the wines in context, getting people here, showing them the work on the farm and then pouring them the wines and saying, you know, and being able to show people um, this is why these wines are the way they are. Sure. Um, we, you know, and, and some of our, you know, in, in outside markets and other places, some of, some of our most ardent supporters, you know, retailers that, that you know, support Antiquum Farm in a, in a really meaningful, meaningful way uh, are the result of, of them having come here stayed in the cottage and visited the farm and, and, and then, you know, and maybe before that they sold a couple cases a year and then they came here and they went, oh, okay, I, you know, they, now I get it. And then, and then they go out and become evangelists for grazing base. But, you know, <laughs> to me, like if, if I can get a retailer talking, not talking about wine, but talking about how 
sheep and pigs and chickens can influence wine and how if I like what really floats my boat is if I can get a psalm in a restaurant talking about that you know when we think about the idea of terroir like everybody talks about it as like well it's it's climate and it's soil well there's a lot more there's the people you know there's the culture of the people that live in the place and there's that microbiological culture as well and and you know I I'm always saying like, you know, biology is, is, is place, you know, and I, I believe that more. I, I think that it has a greater and a, a potentially greater influence than, than soil, uh, is just, you know, what, what makes a place a place? Is it like having, having all of these different, you know, inputs in like this perfect ratio on paper that then is applied at a given rate to a site, or is it the things in the place that are alive? You know, you hear my my answer to that in my tone. Like I, you know, I I just really strongly believe in that. So, so you really want to some talking about like the importance of pig shit to your to the wine yeah. that you have okay yeah and like root die off and you know and and that that the the importance of of microbiology in place and like its ability to influence how that wine is expressing itself like ideally it's it's not always going to happen sometimes they'll just say this is really different and delicious and that's plenty i mean we'll take what we can get <laughs> so so as you start a, a program like that and it comes time to actually make wine, tell me about that process of, of finding the, finding people to work with to, to kind of fulfill the vision of what Antiquum wines would taste like. Yeah, we, I, I mean, I am, I am really lucky. Um, so Andrew Bandy Smith is our winemaker. Um, and I've known dude for a while and Honestly, before he was even a winemaker, um, I I just decided that he was the guy. Eventually, that he was the right person for the job. Um, winemakers talk a lot about respecting fruit and farming and vineyards, but again, like there's this human tendency. You know, we just we got to put our thumbprints on things you know and and ego gets in the way and I'm not saying Andrew doesn't have an ego <laughs> he's the human being like the rest of us but he has about as small a one as anyone I've ever met and he doesn't he doesn't care about being known but I think he should be known um, uh, he doesn't care about being known He's more interested truly in the multi-generational approach uh, of this property. So he's interested in passing this on to my children if they desire to, to step into this um, against all advice and, <laughs> and good thinking. Um, and he has an intuition about this vineyard and an understanding of it and a respect for the farming that I that I have not seen anywhere else. So, so even before he was a winemaker, when he was kind of cellar assistant, 
um, I was just like, I'm going to keep my eye on that guy. Mm. And, and honestly, like, you know, he made some, he's made some wines and he made some very good wines, uh, for, you know, at, at a pretty prestigious program, but like there weren't a lot of years here, but there's a, there's a wisdom and, and a depth of understanding to the way that he approaches our work. Um, that is awesome to get to be a part of. Um, so the wines have shifted a lot in the last, I've, I've been proud of every wine we've made, um, but I feel like the last few years, the wines have just dropped into a greater sense of truth and honesty um, and, and, a, and a willingness to, um, to just let things be what they are you know mm -hmm. uh, to, to not like it's something we're continuously saying here is like style is not a thing you know we in wine we talk about style in the industry like we talk about style all the time and we don't we don't we don't think that's that should even be part of the conversation it's to us it's just what happens happens you know you mentioned the, the multi-generational uh, kind of long-term approach here mm -hmm. uh, Obviously, your, your family has grown up with this as part of it. So tell me about the kind of having family entwined with the business and, and sort of what your long-term vision would be for this space. Yeah, um, you know, I mean, first and foremost, I never want to Im impose my vision on, on my kids. Um, that said, <laughs> there's dreams, you know, and, and I mean, obviously my dream would be for my family to always be working together forever and but I fully respect that um, my kids may have other talents or desires. They may want to live somewhere else. I know I did, you know, when I was, like I said earlier, I couldn't wait to get out of here, you know, and then I couldn't come back fast enough, you know. Um, so you never know what's going to happen, but it's been great. You know, the kids growing up, um, uh, you know the the whole birds coming in the vineyard and being part of the system that was that was something that was largely introduced by my daughter um, you know and some of it through kind of happy accident but uh, through having you know a five-year-old ten chickens and they get out and they get in the vineyard and uh, you know and then you see something happening and like I was saying you know good farming is observation and reaction and and so, um, but both kids have, have grown up working in this, um, uh, you know, some, sometimes more than others, sometimes a lot, you know, um, as, as my daughter has gotten older, um, she has, um, oh, until in the last year. So this year she's actually sort of redoubled and intensified her her th her love of all things with wings um uh, and and that's been really great she's going on to college next year and it's been really cool to see her reconnecting with the farm but sort of through her like m late middle school and high school years uh she developed her own set of really intense interests uh she's very politically engaged um activism and uh is also a, a very ferocious uh high school debater that you know 
did some really great things in a in a very very small small program <laughs> um so she was very very competitive on kind of national level so she those were really her passions were sort of debate and political policy stuff and and activism and that's exactly who she is and what she should be doing and i'm really excited for her to move on this fall and be where she should be mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. um and my my son is 14 uh, going on 25 um and um and he's he's also sort of doing that teenage like slight pulling away uh he's had a much more intense engagement with with the farm sort of through his middle school years uh and and at times has really been uh, my right-hand person here, especially during the summer months. But he largely maintains this garden around us. Uh, so he's kind of become our, our groundskeeper um, <laughs> because he, he will willingly do that work. Um, and then, you know, he, he does all kinds of other things. You know, he does uh, some of our, some, he's kind of interested in metalworking. He makes knives and forges iron and all this kind of stuff. So he, um, so he's also learned to weld. So you know, if I have kind of uh, metal repair stuff with equipment, he does that. And then he works with the animals in the vineyard quite a bit. So um, he does. I'm going to say now somewhere around you know anywhere from 18 to 20 hours a week. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he's he's on payroll, likes money. Uh, you know, building up that that date budget for high school, I think, is, is part of the idea. Um, but he's also very interested in the hospitality side of things. So uh, one of the things that we do with our wine club that we call the Antiquum Farm family is we have a guest chef that comes in and works with us for a year to take take the club through seasonal dinners every year. And uh, so last year we were working with Carl Hall and it was really cool to watch through the year Jules' level of interest in that grow and Carl kind of letting him do more and more mm -hmm. with each step, with each season. Um, so, I, you know, I don't, I don't know. You know, he talks about winemaking. He talks about, uh, you know, food as, as potentially part of the equation. You know, he also... You know, a few years ago, he was going to be a professional skateboarder. So, you know, he's 14. <laughs> we'll see where he lands. <laughs> Maybe all of the above. Yeah, I mean, I, I know, I know, um, I know it'll be interesting. He's a, he's an interesting cat who is uh, who is just, you know, he's one of those people that he says, "I want to try everything," and that can, for a parent that can be a little scary sometimes. Uh, but I you know he, he's an exciting person to be around and it's never dull so so obviously we're, we're talking to you in, in july of 2020 in, in the midst of, of a pandemic still mm -hmm. i'm curious how COVID 19 has affected your practices here your business your, your farming uh, and and kind of how you see it playing out uh in, in the harvest yeah um Boy, that is that's that's a tough one. Um, I'll be honest. Uh, it's been, um, I mean, it's been really hard for everybody. Um, from a business standpoint, um, it's been pretty devastating. 
Um, you know, I, I'm confident that we are getting through to the other side. Um, as long as that side comes in a reasonable time frame. Um, you know, it's been, um, it, there were some holes in our plan uh, and the way that our business was structured that we were already well aware of and were in process of, of plugging those holes. And, and then all of this happened and that it was like a flashing sign with a siren blaring. Uh, that like yeah the internet matters <laughs> you know and all these things like you know technology is not something i do you know and and it became evident that you know that was that was a fault um you know we were largely distributed and did not have a very large you know we were working on rolling out our our direct-to-consumer program. So we, we happen to be in a part of the Willamette Valley where a lot of the brands are purely direct-to-consumer mm -hmm. and and not a lot of distribution, uh, out-of-state market sales. Uh, so we so we very sort of initially conscientiously said we're gonna we're gonna do the exact opposite. We're gonna focus elsewhere and then sort of let our our broader market drive our direct-to-consumer sales well that 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 worked and and then now it doesn't work <laughs> so um you know and it's it's we're well positioned to to get through it um but it's but it's been a, a challenge mm -hmm. um and and we're working with you know finding the right messaging uh to to let people know that this is still a safe uh, place and pleasurable place to come visit. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the nice things is we were we were always a reservation appointment only model for direct to consumer. So we so outside of you know masks and hand sanitizer, you know, outside of COVID protocols, we didn't really shift anything. Um, if anything, we actually created more opportunities uh, for people to be able to come because because we were also just looking at rolling out a more robust mm -hmm. direct consumer program. Um, coming into harvest, it's it's going to be a challenge. Um, you know, uh, that is, and that's all stuff that we are combing through right now. You know, how do we pick fruit? How do we? Luckily, processing wines. It's it's Andrew and I and my son. Um, so we're all part of each other's bubble, mm -hmm. and we have been for months. Uh, so we're not particularly worried there on the processing end, but things like you know bottling protocol and 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 picking are definitely going to present some challenges. Um, you know, one one thing that we are um, that I'm grateful for is that we've been night picking for years. So instead of working with anywhere from 15 to 25 pickers in a night, you know, we rarely work with more than five to seven, you know, and a lot of nights it's just Pedro and I that pick, you know, if we've got three tons, it's us, you know, because you have such a wider window 
to pull that fruit off. And we still have fruit hitting the crush pad at, you know, four or five o'clock in the morning. We're done processing wines by, you know, nine, 10 o'clock all, all the time. And we're back here setting up for the next day. Mm -hmm. So we're able to run with a much smaller, tighter crew who is already, you know, one of the things we did this year, you know, we, we were largely our vineyard crew is myself, my son, Pedro, his wife, Leticia, and then we occasionally bring in maybe three more people for like a leaf pulling shoot positioning, things like that. This year, one of the things we did is we just committed to those additional people and said, we're going to keep you busy and, and you're our crew through the season. So there's been a lot of sort of fluff, busy work for those people, but it also became a matter of like, we're just going to retain you so that we don't have people coming and going. So we can, we can establish that bubble mm -hmm. and have a little more, you know, people, when they leave work, they go do what they do and you don't have control over that. Um, but at least we're talking to the same people and staying consistent with our, with our messaging. Um, and you know, and that, that feels like, like the best we can do in, mm -hmm. in many ways, mm -hmm. you know? What are the biggest changes you've seen in, in Oregon wine since you've been, been a part of it? What, what, what's, what, what are the biggest differences between then and now? Oh, geez. Um, when, we, when we came into this, I thought, well, this is the, the peak of the growth. It can't get any bigger. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's, that's one thing. Um, I just... I, one of the, uh, the, something that seems to be shifting over time that I that I think is really great is I see sort of Oregon increasingly raising the bar on hospitality and understanding that you know this this is an experience driven industry. Um, so uh, people really like digging into making really in-depth meaningful experiences for their consumers um so i think that's great um i you know on the one hand i i you know i i dispel organics and biodynamics but i also want to be really clear like that's my team <laughs> you know we're all on the same team there um because there's other things that are that are for producing a, a, a luxury product that I think are just downright criminal, you know, that, <laughs> that, you know, if I was in charge, they, they, you couldn't do some of those things. Um, so that sort of increasing, uh, pra uh, sustainability practices in the Oregon wine industry. I mean, I, I think that Oregon is, is, um, is a real leader in terms of sustainability, uh, you know, not just in wine and agriculture in general. I think it's a place that people look to. I think it's what they think of now. It's part of the Oregon brand. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's something that I'm really proud to be a part of. Um, yeah, so I mean, those, are, those would be some of the shifts that I've seen as those things just sort of increasing and digging in. Um, and you know a, a lot of a lot of you know 
younger people stepping in and starting brands, uh, you know, people working with different varietals. And, you know, I mean, that isn't when we planted, it was it was Pinot and Gris and everyone was tearing out Chardonnay to plant Pinot Gris. And now they're tearing out Pinot Gris. Um, you know, I happen to and it may be just because of what's occurred here, but I believe in the varietal. Um, and I think it's coming back, baby. Um, <laughs> it's going to be the new edgy wine. Um, no, I, I mean, I, I think that, you know, those that, that if you farm for it, you know, and if you uh, make those wines with ambition and intention, then, then they come. And if you don't, then they're what people expect of Pinot Gris, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so yeah, those would, those would be some of the shifts I'm, I'm looking at. What, is, what about as you look ahead? Mm -hmm. what, is, what is the next decade gonna look like for Oregon wine? Oh, geez, you're probably asking the wrong dude. <laughs> um, you know, and j I, I, I tend to generally just kind of keep my finger on my own pulse <laughs> and, and uh, not tune in too much. Um, I don't know. I'm not sure I can really give an informed answer on that. Andrew will give you a really great answer on that. Is there something you he, hope, hope he for? He talks to everybody and I, I stay here and hide on the farm. <laughs> Is there something you hope for as you look ahead? Yeah, I mean, I I mean, I want grazing-based viticulture to take over the industry, <laughs> which means everybody goes broke. Um, no, I, I mean, yeah, th again, that sort of uh, leadership on and sustainability, I would like to see our industry become more diverse. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, that, I, and I know like that's something that everyone is talking about uh, right now. Um, I'm glad that the spotlight is on it. It's something that we, you know, <laughs> that we've been talking about for years, you know, since we got into it. Um, you know, Oregon is a, is an overwhelmingly white place. Um, and as someone who, from a farming perspective, believes in diversity uh, and that diversity makes things stronger, more resilient, more interesting uh, and more beautiful, like that doesn't stop at sheep for me. Like I always say that you can see my politics in my farming, um, you know, when I when I talk about individual voices you know vines being individuals and not subjecting them to uh a homogenized input like i i mean that from a very like human perspective um so what what i really hope and want to see is that we that we're not just posting memes you know and making statements um that we're doing things that are actionable and and taking steps and and there are people out there that are that are that are doing that um you know but we need to we need to be putting real money into it uh resources and and time and and i mean it i don't know it, it needs to it's it's something that has to change and it has to change rapidly. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So, 
What about the future for, for you here and, and for Antiqua? What, what do you see over the next decade here? Um, what do I see for me here? Uh, I don't know, man. I, I mean, okay, on, I, one second. I'm going to pause yeah. you for one second. We should switch batteries. Okay. Okay. I'll ask you the question. It's the last question, so I'll. Okay. We'll have one more question for you, too. We'll save right. that one for last. So, future for yourself, what do you see as you look ahead for yourself and for Antiquum? Um, you know, from, you know, here at the farm, we're definitely trying to continue to up our hospitality game, uh, make things, you know, have better and better experiences for our people, you know, and that's. Uh, for someone with an unrefined feral redneck background, that that's uh, challenging. I'm lucky to have Andrew and other people around me who who have good taste um, <laughs> to help <laughs> us along. Um, and you know, for Antiquum, we 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 do want to continue to you know, expand into other markets, but also uh, most importantly, never settle. You know, I, I, it, it is frustrating and, uh, you know, coming back to, again, that thing of, of happiness versus fulfillment uh, and do those things, can they really necessarily sit together? I mean, I, I don't think that there's an easy answer to that. So, so I, I you know, I just want to keep the conversation going. I want to keep the conversation going about sustainability, you know, um, true sustainability, not, not something that's just about checking off things on a list. Um, I would, I would hope that with time, our work that we do here becomes a recognized part of that conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and I get like it's wingnut stuff for most people, um, and it's it's financially irresponsible, and it it doesn't, you know, it's not a method, it's a lifestyle, it's an all-in thing. Uh, but I would love to uh, move to a point where we are helping people who are interested in this way of working, mm -hmm. um, so that we aren't just this weird little winery down in Junction City that does this thing. Like, I, I would like to share this and and help it grow. And I think that it would be a valuable contribution to viticulture in, in general um, if there were more people looking looking at uh, wine and farming in general and uh, in, in this way. Mm -hmm. Question I skipped over earlier. Why the name Antiquum? Uh, Latin for old methods, old stuff, aging guy. <laughs> um, so yeah, so uh, originally the vineyard was called Old School, um, and that came out of you know I, I was saying earlier that farming with draft horses, and and that the wonderful thing about farming with draft horses is is it actually that one thing opened my life up to a whole beautiful subculture of people um, who who farm in some really beautiful ways and through those people i found what i consider to kind of be my farming gods you know and people that i you know people like wendell berry and and even you know like people that are still around like 
originally, you know, started out farming here in Junction City was a guy named Lynn Miller that's sort of a, a draft horse guru. And I just, I think of the guy as kind of a prophet in ways, but, you know, Joel Salatin, you know, um, uh, all of um, all these different people I found through that community, mm-hmm. you know, um, not much of a reader, but back then it was, uh, you know, people going like, have you read this guy? Have you read this guy? You know, and, and all of this stuff, like some of it you read and you go like, well, that's bullshit. And you throw it out, you know, but even in the bullshit, there's always a like, there's a little something you take away from it. And over time you form your own, you know, mm-hmm. your, your, your own complete sense of, of uh, you know, your complete view. Um, and yeah, so that's so, so Antiquum again also is kind of, um, when I was farming with horses, it was, you know, you're working largely with equipment from, you know, Max 1920, you know, and everything else. So, so, you know, just everything you're doing when you're working that way, you're, you're surrounded by antiquity, you know, and, and so, um, it's, it's just that, you know, old, old methods. Right. That's all the questions that I have for you. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover today that we should have covered? No, I think think we did it. All right. Excellent. Yeah, appreciate it. Thank you so much for Thank your you. answers, for your stories, for your uh, philosophies. And we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.